Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of You Make Me Sick podcast where we discuss, well, now we just do things that'll make you sick. Used to be pathogenic microorganisms, but uh, now we're going to kind of, I guess, throw anything in there that may be interesting that'll make you sick, as uh, we just did with our last couple of episodes on uh, heavy metal toxicities. So uh, if anybody has any suggestions of anything that could make you sick, let me know. As always, we can be found on Twitter, uh, Make Me Sick Pod, and then uh, you can contact me via email at uh, you make me sick pod at gmail.com. Uh, so, today's episode, we are going to be looking at a really nasty virus. Everybody's heard of this, uh, probably anyway. Uh, rabies. So, I uh, was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next, and uh, couldn't really figure out. Uh, if I want to do rabies, or if I want to go with another direction, a mold, or uh, something I haven't done, uh, fungus, I really haven't done any of those yet. But uh, rabies look pretty interesting. I didn't know a whole lot about it. I mean, just, you know, typical stuff that we learn in nursing school, and then just kind of what you learn, you know, growing up. It's uh, one of those viruses that's been around for a very long time. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the rabies virus. So rabies kills about 70,000 people a year still, uh, so still pretty deadly. Uh, it's one of the oldest known diseases in history. Uh, it's uh, cases dating back about 4,000 years, so been around for a very long time. Uh, it affects only mammals. So uh, for those of you who are wondering what qualifies as a mammal, uh, they're warm-blooded animals with fur, So uh, and humans are mammals. So uh, definitely warm-blooded. A lot of us have fur, uh, even though in humans, you know, it's obviously, we consider it hair. But, uh, so people obviously can get the rabies as well. Uh, Other animals like birds and snakes and fish, these are not mammals. Uh, They can't get rabies and they can't give it to you. So, a few years ago, I was attacked by an owl more than once uh, while I was out running. Uh, When I lived in the Pacific Northwest, they have these owls called barred owls, B-A-R-D. And uh, they're very territorial. And they're, uh, they're known for attacking hikers and joggers and even people on bikes. So uh, unfortunately for me, I was out running early uh, and got uh, kind of, they would come down and swoop down and hit you on the head. So that happened to me twice. And uh, at the time, I was a little bit concerned uh, because I wasn't sure if, you know, birds could carry rabies or not. But uh, a little quick research found out that they couldn't. So uh, if you do get attacked by a bird uh, or a fish uh, or if... Snakes, even though they have venom, uh, they can't carry rabies. So, uh, as far as uh, mammals, uh, so for the longest time, uh, up until about 130 years ago, uh, any kind of uh, bite from a rabbit animal essentially mean would mean death, uh, 100%. Uh, still, once you're symptomatic with rabies, it's still pretty much 100% mortality rate. But uh, thankfully, old Louis Pasteur uh, actually created a rabies vaccine in 1885. And this has kind of changed the way that rabies has actually spread and infected uh, other people and been treated, uh, not just in humans, but in other animals as well. It's kind of given us the ability to vaccinate uh, and inoculate uh, our domestic animals uh, and some wildlife now as well. Uh, worldwide, though, I mean, this is pretty much in developed countries, though. Worldwide, it's still a huge issue, uh, and I'll kind of touch on that. We'll do some epidemiology uh, in a little while. We'll talk about here in the U.S. and then kind of worldwide, the issues with rabies that uh, still exist today, even with vaccines out there. So, 
so what is rabies, right? It's a virus. It uh, belongs to the Rhabdoviridae family of viruses. Uh, it's a rod-shaped or bullet-shaped single-stranded DNA, uh, sorry, single-stranded RNA, negative sense virus. Uh, it is unsegmented. It is an enveloped RNA virus. And like all other viruses, uh, it hijacks the host cellular machinery and then replicates and spreads throughout the uh, infected individual. Most commonly, this virus is spread through the bite of an infected animal uh, or other mammal. Uh, and this includes domestic and wild animals. Uh, transmission usually occurs from saliva that uh, is contacted through broken skin, uh, puncture wounds from teeth. Uh, could even be uh, if you have claw marks and you get some saliva on that. Any, anything that's going to kind of ruin the integrity of the skin so a virus can enter through there. So um, typically with saliva. Uh, other to infection though can occur. Uh, aerosolized forms. Um, ingestion transplacentally so it can be passed from mother to baby uh, and even through organ transplants uh, there's actually an episode of scrubs for anybody who's a big scrub fan or scrubs fan i should say uh, there's an episode where they take uh, they have an organ donor and they take their donor organs uh, put them in people and then multiple people die from it uh, kind of a downer of an episode but uh, still a great show anyway uh, following viral transmission uh, so the virus kind of travels through the body using the peripheral nervous system. So it would kind of enter at the, the site of the bite or whatever wound there is there. And then it starts to travel. Um, eventually it targets the central nerves from the peripheral nerves. And this leads to a, a process called encephalomyelitis. Uh, in humans, the first symptoms can seem like any other kind of viral infection. Uh, you'll have fever, malaise, headaches, some GI disturbances. Uh, eventually, though, these uh, progress to anxiety, then agitation, and then you get a profound delirium from it as well. Uh, what's interesting is uh, something that's kind of specific to the whole rabies virus is uh, a tingling at the site of infection that usually happens after the first few days. Uh, after the virus is spread, from the peripheral nerves to the central nervous system, it'll actually travel back to the peripheral nervous system, peripheral nervous system as well. Uh, here it actually affects kind of highly innervated areas too. Uh, some of these happen to be salivary glands. So kind of one of the hallmarks that people think about with rabies is kind of foaming at the mouth, the whole rabid dog look. Uh, and this is actually due to some hypersalivation that is caused uh, by this innervation, just kind of the attacking of these nerves from the rabies virus. Uh, what's kind of even more interesting than that is that uh, those who suffer from uh, this intense pharyngeal muscle spasm at the sight or like the sound of water. So even just seeing water, or hearing water, if you have somebody who's rabid, you'll kind of get this condition called hydrophobia, uh, where you'll end up spasming out um, just from the sight or sound of water. Once exposed, uh, animals tend to die within about 10 days. Uh, the incubation period, though, can actually last from anywhere from two weeks to six years, but averages a few months. Uh, factors that can kind of on, kind of fit, that alter the onset of the virus is kind of the viral load. So depending on how much um, viral load was in the saliva when you were bitten, uh, the location of the exposure, uh, and then the severity of the wound. So uh, anything that's bigger, deeper, that would, you know, kind of give just more of a viral load, probably a quicker onset for the disease process. Uh, 
so the virus, once it travels to the central nervous system, it kind of has profound effects. Uh, typically with the brainstem, uh, where it has uh, very, very severe effects, and anything that affects the brainstem is usually not a good thing. Uh, there are toxic effects that also occur through an inflammatory response, uh, and the virus is suspected to affect kind of neurotransmission. So those neurological cells don't fire as well, and then things start to go haywire. Uh, there's also cell death that can occur through these virus-dependent and cell-dependent routes as well. Eventually, the virus progresses just to a complete failure of the entire nervous system, which will result in death, uh, essentially. It should be noted also that, uh, you know, once you see these clinical symptoms, uh, which usually occur in the first few days, usually after about like, anywhere from zero to three days, uh, if you haven't had treatment by then, then rabies is always fatal. It's a pretty much 100% mortality rate. They have done autopsies. Uh, in autopsy studies, uh, there are some that reveal that the brain is actually pretty swollen uh, and has evidence of kind of an acute inflammation. So how do you tell if someone has rabies? So uh, let's say you're just a clinician or maybe you're just a, somebody sitting at home and then you think you may have you know, been bitten by something that had rabies. So obviously taking an accurate history uh, will kind of tell you um, pretty straightforward. If somebody was outside and there was a rabid, ra like a raccoon that was acting crazy and ran up and bit them and was foaming at the mouth, might be a good chance it has rabies. Uh, but sometimes it's not always that easy to detect. Uh, it can be a little bit difficult sometimes just getting an accurate history, especially since you can't have that long incubation period of anywhere from a few days all the way up to years. Uh, there's also the multiple potential transmission methods as well. So it's not always as simple as being bitten by an animal. Um, the less common ones, obviously, the ingestion and aerosolization, they're not as frequent, but they do occur. From a symptomatic standpoint, uh, there are a few stages of rabies. So this is kind of where it gets to be a little bit easier to, I wouldn't even say easier, because rabies is usually not the first diagnosis if you don't have you know, an acute suspicion of rabies. But uh, there are a few stages, I'll kind of discuss those right now, that will kind of show you just symptomatically what people experience. So uh, the first one of these is called the incubation. Uh, so the incubation period, uh, it's defined as the inoculation to the first onset of symptoms. So this would be really early on. Uh, and this can range, like I said, anywhere from days to years, depending on uh, factors leading up to uh, the actual infection, like how they were infected. Uh, the second one is the prodrome. Uh, these are kind of nonspecific symptoms, similar to like flu-like illnesses, GI symptoms, things like that. Uh, the third stage is when the neurological symptoms occur. Uh, the fourth stage is coma. And then death follows that. I mean, I guess you could kind of consider that a stage. Um, but uh, for all intents and purposes, we'll just kind of talk about the, the first four that really occur. So that first stage... Uh, as I said, this is the incubation period. Um, this is the one that can last, the, it can last days to years, but uh, typically happens the first few, you know, two to two to 10 days. Uh, this is where the first onset of symptoms will actually occur. Uh, that second symptom, second, sorry, second is the period is the prodrome. Uh, these are also those nonspecific symptoms. So these are the flu-like illnesses, the GI symptoms. This is where you're going to have fevers and aches and pains. Uh, just kind of, it could be, like I said, pretty much typically any kind of viral, like symptomatic, uh, you know, influenza, you know, even bacteria will kind of cause some of these. So it can be hard to diagnose. But uh, this is, you'll see, this is the second uh, kind of 
uh, set of symptoms. The third stage for rabies, this is where you start to really kind of see it separate from the other two. Uh, this is where your neurological symptoms start. So, and within this third stage, there are actually three kind of subsets here. There's the encephalopath, sorry, encephalatic, uh, which they consider the quote-unquote furious stage. There's the paralytic, uh, which is considered the dumb. This isn't me. This is that's somebody else. It's the dumb kind of stage. Uh, and then there's a rare non-classic form. So with this third stage where you have these neurological symptoms, it can present in either you know, one of these three. Um, this isn't really a series of how they happen. It's usually seen one of these three, uh, the typical symptoms that you'll see somebody have. So the uh, encephalatic form, uh, this is the one that's most common. Uh, this is seen in about 85% of cases. Uh, these are the people who will exhibit kind of that hydrophobia that I was talking about earlier, that kind of really weird reaction to water. Uh, agitation, mental status changes also occur uh, during this stage. Uh, the potential for an autonomic uh, dysfunction. So you have increased deep tendon refluxes. You'll have uh, nuchal rigidity, which is kind of like a stiffening or inability to bend the neck. And then you might also find a positive Babinski sign. So a Babinski sign, you're doing like a, com like a complete uh, comprehensive neurological examination. This is where you'll actually uh, kind of apply pressure in an upward motion, a lateral motion on the bottom of the foot. And you'll get a positive Babinski sign when like the great toe, the big toe kind of extends out. You might see a possible fanning of the toes. This is never a good sign. This should, you shouldn't see this in somebody with a normal neurological exam. So anytime you see this, you know that something bad is happening. Uh, people can also experience uh, tachycardia, so increased heart rate, tachypnea, increased breathing, uh, as well as a fever. And uh, this actually progresses pretty rapidly to like a kind of a hyperactivity. Uh, that uh, second less common form, but can be seen as a paralytic form of rabies, uh, this only happens in about 20% uh, of cases. Uh, this can actually be confused with uh, a few other diagnosis. One most commonly is Guillain-Barre syndrome. Uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome, for those of you who aren't uh, familiar with it, it's an autoimmune disorder that actually attacks the nerves. Uh, and this kind of results like in an ascending paralysis. So uh, rabies can actually mimic this uh, in this paralytic phase. Uh, and rabies is often overlooked as a diagnosis because of this. They'll kind of look for these other uh, kind of autoimmune or neurological issues uh, before they'll even think about rabies if there isn't an obvious uh, indication to look for rabies. Uh, the other thing too why rabies is often overlooked when they present with this is you don't have the hydrophobia, you don't have the irritability that you see in the other rabies cases. Um, you'll also see weakness, you will see an altered mental status, uh, ongoing fevers, bladder dysfunction, those might still happen though in this paralytic form. Uh, the final form uh, is kind of really non-classic. It's pretty rare. Uh, this is generally associated with seizures and kind of more profound motor and sensory issues. Uh, that one, it's a, like they say, they call it the non-classical. That's something that you just don't see very often. It's usually either uh, one of the first two uh, that I just mentioned, the paralytic or uh, the uh, encephalatic form. So... Uh, Stage four, that was stage three. So I know stage three, probably confusing a lot of people. You have stage one, stage two, stage three, which can be one of three different uh, kind of subsets there. And then you have stage four, uh, which is the coma stage. 
This usually happens within about 10 days of starting to see symptoms from stage three. Uh, patients, uh, they may have an ongoing hydrophobia. Um, they may actually end up developing this prolonged apnea and then have kind of a flaccid paralysis. Uh, following the onset of stage four, most people will die within about two to three days. Uh, this is if you don't have advanced life support available. Uh, even though if you have ICU level care, you have ventilators, you have medications to keep blood pressure up, uh, it's pretty much a zero survival rate once you hit this point with rabies. You're just, you're not going to live. So, so what about a diagnosis? So how can we diagnose rabies? You know, you have, you know, these are the signs and symptoms to look for. Uh, maybe you've been exposed, maybe you haven't. How do we actually diagnose it? So if you don't have a definitive source for rabies, um, the diagnosis kind of comes from excluding possible other causes. Uh, in early stages, it can look, you know, anything like uh, an influenza, it can look like a Coxsackie virus, like a polio virus, uh, or other enteroviruses, or even herpes. It uh, mimics a lot of these. In later stages, it's difficult as well, because it also looks similar to things like a delirium tremens, uh, botulism, diphtheria, tick-borne illnesses will kind of look like this, uh, as well as a Guillain-Barre that I had mentioned earlier. What sucks is that most common uh, like lab blood tests and imaging will give you no clues that you have rabies either. Um, it's, you know, really for confirmation, you need to get a sample that's been isolated in a rabies-specific viral culture and then detected by a polymerase chain reaction, so a PCR test. Uh, or you can, if you can also do a positive antibody titer is found. If you take a sample, you can get it from that and you can diagnose with that. Uh, or in cerebral spinal fluid, if you do a spinal tap, sometimes you can get it from there as well. Uh, as far as bodily fluids, that can actually lead to a diagnosis. You can pretty much gather a sample from, like I said, cerebral spinal fluid, blood, saliva. You can do tears. Uh, you can even do tissue biopsies as well. Uh, it should be noted, though, that the, the CDC, they kind of state that no single test is enough to rule in or out rabies. So you're going to need confirmation from a couple of different sources. Um, PCR testing is pretty accurate. So uh, if you have a PCR test that's positive for rabies, you're probably good. But uh, they'll do other tests just to confirm. Uh, what's, I mean, here in the U.S. as well, like rabies, we really don't think of. Uh, you know, like I said, unless you've been, you know, you can have a history of somebody coming in contact with an animal that appears to be or has been rabid. Just because it's uh, it's incredibly rare in the U.S., you really have to have a high level of suspicion to even try and test for it. Uh, not so much in the rest of the world. The rest of the world, it's still a huge issue. Uh, what is helpful, say, you know, if you have been bitten by an animal that's suspected, uh, it's great if you're actually able to capture that animal. Uh, and then you typically they'll euthanize it and test it. Uh, and then they'll probably start you on some kind of post-exposure prophylaxis anyway. So, uh, so what if I do have rabies? What if I was bitten by this possibly rabid animal? Um, what do I do now? So there's no treatment for rabies. So if you have rabies, uh, you know, I, I shouldn't say there's no treatment. You can treat the actual exposure to rabies, but the virus itself, there's no real cure for, uh, vaccines play a huge role in this prevention though. Um, to that point, uh, prevention is kind of the best way to avoid rabies. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about this coming up, but uh, with domestic animal vaccination, um, you know, and monitoring, 
And uh, in the U.S., especially here, more than other parts of the world, we've been really good about, uh, you know, mandating that uh, domestic animals, especially dogs, are vaccinated for this. But uh, if you are bitten, uh, wound care is kind of first priority. So uh, this is actually, this might actually save your life if you're ever somewhere where you think you might have been bitten by uh, a rabid animal. So uh, wound care alone has been known to be almost 100% effective uh, if initiated within like three hours of inoculation. So if you can get in there and clean your wound uh, really quickly after being bitten or exposed, uh, it might actually uh, be the difference in uh, saving your life or at least preventing the spread of rabies. So you should scrub the wound, uh, scrub the surrounding areas using soap and water. Uh, you can also use like a povidone iodine solution or even alcohol to clean it. And if you have puncture wounds, as much as this might hurt, you kind of want to get in there and clean those as deep as you can and really irrigate the crap out of those. Typically, uh, you know, even if you did this at home, you should still go to the hospital. Um, at the hospital, a lot of times, they'll kind of throw a virucidal agent on there. There's uh, benzalkonium chloride or the povidone iodine uh, are two of the more highly recommended for this. Uh, here in the U.S., so typically, uh, if a bite is known to be from either a bat or a skunk or a raccoon or a fox, some kind of wild animal, uh, patients are always treated immediately with the rabies vaccine, uh, as well as something called the rabies immune globulin. Uh, outside of the U.S., uh, if you're bitten by a dog, uh, it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, so treated immediately with the vaccine and immunoglobulin. Uh, if somebody has had a previous immunization for whatever reason, uh, typical treatment uh, is probably going to be another kind of uh, almost like a booster of uh, the vaccine. There's a couple of different ones. There's the human diploid cell vaccine and there's a purified chick embryo vaccine uh, that'll be used. People who've had prior immunization, they'll usually get uh, a dose on day zero. So whenever the you know possible infection started, whenever you were bit, uh, and then on day three. For people who haven't been immunized, uh, the treatment, it still involves dosing with one of those two vaccines but it's gonna be a longer series. So you'll get it day zero, you'll get it day three, you'll get it day seven, and day 14. And uh, if the individual is immunocompromised for whatever reason, they'll get uh, a fifth uh, viral, a fifth vaccine, sorry. Uh, excuse me, uh, on the 28th day post kind of uh, inoculation as well. So uh, these people are also treated, uh, anybody who's unimmunized, uh, with the human rabies immunoglobulin as well. Uh, try, what they try to do is uh, get this around uh, as much of the wound as possible. Uh, any remaining dose uh, of the immunoglobulin, they'll actually give intramuscularly in an injection. Uh, it should also be noted uh, for those healthcare providers, if you ever have to administer these, wherever you give your vaccine dose, you want to give your immunoglobulin dose uh, pretty much as far away from that as possible. So since you'll be giving immunoglobulins close to where the actual uh, infection site is, kind of opposite of that other limb, extremity, um, somewhere further away, you'll want to be doing uh, the, the actual vaccine for it. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, I'll talk about this in a little bit too, like bats here, in the, at least in the United States, um, are the major source of rabies. So uh, if for whatever reason you wake up uh, and you see a bat flying around in the room, you might want to just check your body for any kind of puncture marks and get immunized, uh, you know, uh, just as a precaution. So 
So how about here in the US? So you know, how prevalent is rabies today? So the number of rabies-related deaths in the U.S. has dropped quite a bit, actually, in the last, you know, 100 years or so. Uh, they used to see uh, 100 cases annually uh, in the early 1900s. Now they see, like, one to three a year, and that's kind of been uh, the regular since about 1960. A lot of this is attributed just to the successful pet vaccination, and then as well as animal control programs, uh, public health surveillance, and then just the availability of the, uh, the post-exposure prophylaxis as well has really helped. Uh, about 60,000 Americans each year will get that post-exposure prophylaxis. So they'll get the vaccine and the uh, immunoglobulin uh, just as a precaution because they're not sure whether or not they were bitten or scratched uh, by an infected animal. Here in the U.S., more than 90% of the reported cases of rabies uh, actually occur in wildlife. So domestically, we're, we're just seeing a very, very low amount of that. Uh, in other countries, not so much. But uh, here you'll see about 10% of the cases in dogs and cats, and then even uh, other forms like cattle, horses, things like that. Uh, for wild animals, the ones that are most likely to carry rabies here in the U.S., uh, you'll see raccoons, skunks, bats, and foxes, uh, with bats being the, the major culprit. They're the leading cause of rabies deaths of people here in the United States and have been for quite some time. Uh, it's thought to be about 7 out of 10 Americans who have died from rabies in the U.S. were infected by bats. It's always bats, you know? They, they're the ones who start all the shit, you know? Uh, if you go back and look at uh, just all these nasty viruses that spread around, uh, Nipah virus, I think the hemorrhagic fevers were bats, uh, you know, there's suspicion, obviously, that, uh, you know, SARS and COVID, all this were from bats. So stay away from bats. Don't go into caves with bats. Uh, you know, it's starting to change my opinion on Batman as well. I don't know. I'm Batman. Anyway, uh, rabid bats, they've been found in all 49 states. Uh, Hawaii. Hawaii is the only rabies-free state. Uh, just another uh, reason why Hawaii is truly a paradise. If you've never been, take the time. Hawaii's beautiful, and they don't have rabies there. Uh, what's good news, though, is that you know the majority of bats don't have rabies, uh, but you can't really tell, right? Uh, what you should be suspicious of, though, any bat that's kind of active in the daytime, uh, found in a place where bats usually aren't, like your home, like bats usually don't reside in people's houses, uh, or on your lawn, uh, they might be rabid. If you come across a bat that's not able to fly or is easily approached, uh, it could also be sick. You should probably stay away from it. Uh, another issue with bats, too, and I kind of mentioned, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, but uh, a problem with bats, they're... Like I said, they're very small puncture wounds that they cause. Um, I think it's been uh, comparable to like the size of like a, like a pencil tip. So they can be very hard to detect. Uh, but you can still get rabies even from a small bite like that. So anytime you come in possible contact with a bat, whether or not you thought you were bitten or not, you should probably get it checked out. I remember reading a story a few years ago. You can look it up. I think it was in Vancouver, British Columbia. There was some kid who was like randomly walking down the street at night, and a bat swooped down and ran into him. And then he wound up dying from rabies, uh, I want to say a few days later, maybe a week later. And it was uh, just that one kind of weird instance where he wasn't provoking it, and the bat was probably just sick and ran into him and somehow either scratched him or 
somehow became infected by it. But crazy story. Kind of freaks me out, you know? Like, that, that stuff does happen. So. Um, all right. So. Uh, dogs. We all love our pets, right? So let's talk about animals here for a minute. Uh, so cats and dogs and even livestock, uh, cattles and horses, uh, they can also get rabies. Uh, almost all cases of pets and livestock that do get rabies, though, weren't vaccinated prior or they weren't up to date on their vaccinations. And most of these pets and cattle and horses uh, will uh, have had contact with wildlife to kind of be infected with the rabies. Uh, fortunately for us in the U.S., there are laws that require our dogs to be vaccinated. Uh, so dogs actually only make up about 1% of all the rabbit animals reported each year here in the U.S. Uh, but uh, in other countries around the world, dogs are actually the number one reservoir uh, for spreading rabies. Uh, exposure to rabid dogs outside the U.S is actually the second leading cause of rabies deaths in Americans. So Americans still die from rabid dogs, but they don't die from rabid dogs in America. Does that make sense? So uh, you're visiting, uh, I don't know, India or, uh, you know, Vietnam, and a feral dog comes up and bites you. Like that's, you know, you should probably go get uh, rabies uh, treatment for that. Uh, as stated before, any mammal can kind of carry rabies, um, but there are smaller rodentia, so rodents, rabbits. Uh, these animals are typically considered safe just because they're not expected to even survive uh, any kind of inoculating wound from a rabbit animal uh, just because of their size. But there have been anecdotal reports, I guess, uh, of rabies being caused by transmission from rats, which is pretty crazy. So uh, stay away from the rats too, rats and bats. Uh, as animal carriers kind of vary by region as well, kind of important to know where you live uh, just to see. And you can actually go on. I think each state has one. Um, and the CDC breaks it down too. Just by region, which animals, uh, at least what they have data for, for carrying um, percentage of rabies per year. So uh, also, as I stated before, uh, once you get symptoms of rabies, you're probably not going to survive it. So if you have any suspicion that you come in contact with an animal that might have rabies and that you might be infected, you really want to get it checked out. Um, so what about our, our little furry friends? How can you kind of tell if they have rabies? So uh, that can be difficult too. Obviously, just by looking at it, you usually can't tell. But uh, animals with rabies do act strangely. Um, you do see aggression, uh, trying to bite other animals. The hypersalivation that I talked about, the kind of foaming of the mouth. Um, for anybody who has read To Kill a Mockingbird or even seen the movie, uh, old Atticus there has to take care of some business in the beginning with a with a rabid dog. It's not fun, but uh, that was life, you know. Uh, not so much nowadays. That being said, though, uh, not all rabid animals will present that way. Uh, some animals with rabies uh, won't kind of have these. Uh, usual symptoms of uh, the aggression. They might actually uh, kind of have an opposite reaction, which you should really take notice if you see a wild animal that's kind of docile unless you get really close to it and acts kind of timid or shy. Uh, not typically how wild animals act, so you should uh, kind of have a high suspicion that there might be something wrong with that animal, uh, including rabies. Uh, 
for the health and safety of wildlife and your pets and yourself, always leave wild animals alone as well. Um, don't feed the bears, you know. And this includes baby animals too. Uh, not just for the sake of rabies, but a lot of times uh, they'll kind of be ostracized or left, uh, left for dead if, uh, uh, if their parents kind of smell some other animal on them. I, at least I'm pretty sure. I don't know. I'm not a wildlife expert, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that's another reason not to go near uh, baby pets. That and animals can just get aggressive and try to attack you. Uh, so just leave wildlife alone. <laughs> how can you prevent, uh, or how, you know, how are we preventing rabies in animals? So, uh, you know, like I said, in the U.S. here, uh, there's the mandated vaccines, especially for dogs. Um, but uh, keep your pets away from them. Spaying and neutering your pets, too, uh, I guess, will kind of help with that. Uh, kind of gets rid of that drive to procreate for them, so they're probably less uh, curious about other animals. And then uh, if you do have any kind of suspicious animal uh, close to your house, in your yard, somewhere else, uh, you can call animal control. Uh, they're good about coming and removing these. So uh, a lot of states now are actually vaccinating wildlife as well. Uh, seeing this mainly with raccoons, uh, and they're doing it, uh, they don't even do it by giving them a shot. They're actually able to kind of give them, they put it in their food. They put some kind of, uh, I'm not sure how the vaccine gets into the food, how they mix it. But uh, they're able to mix it up and then they, they kind of drop this stuff where there's a high population of these raccoons. They eat it, doesn't harm the raccoon, but it uh, prevents them from getting rabies, which is great. And I guess they'll even kind of airdrop this, uh, this food uh, using helicopters or planes in areas where it's hard to get on foot. Um, I don't know if that's specifically for raccoons or other animals as well, but uh, that is being done to greatly reduce the amount of rabies here in the U.S. Um, just a little more data. We'll throw some numbers out there from the CDC just with regard to kind of animals and pets. Uh, here in the U.S., there's about 5,000 animal rabies cases that are reported annually to the CDC. 90% uh, of those occur in wildlife. Uh, that's a huge change even from 1960, so even from, you know, about 60 years ago when the majority of cases were actually in domestic animals, uh, primarily in dogs. Uh, and thanks, you know, that once again, thanks to the, the dog vaccination programs they put in place, you're not seeing that much anymore. Like I said, only about 1% of all uh, rabies cases now in the U.S. are actually from dogs. So uh, regardless of that, still seeing about 60 to 70 dogs a year and about 250 cats a year that are actually reported to have rabies uh, and need to be euthanized. Um, typically, though, all these animals were unvaccinated prior to this uh, and had contact with some kind of wild animal. Uh, got some numbers from 2018. Um, 2018 domestic animals accounted for almost half of all the animals were submitted for testing, but were only about 9% of all the rabies cases reported. So, uh, you know, good numbers there. Um, in 2018, they had 63 rabid dogs. Uh, most of them were in Texas. Uh, there were 15 rabid dogs in Texas. There were 13 in Puerto Rico seven in Georgia, five in Pennsylvania, four in Colorado, three in North Carolina, and then three in Virginia. So as you can see, not a huge amount. This is, like I said, this kind of, uh, this data is a little outdated, but uh, I don't think there's been a huge drop off or increase in the last few years. Uh, number of rabid cats in 2018, there were 241. Uh, there were a total of 33 rabid cattles uh, back in 2018. And then there were 13 rabid horses and donkeys in 2018. 
Um, so that's kind of here in the U.S. I do want to kind of spend just a minute to talk about worldwide, though. So we talked about rabies, what it does, how it affects you. Here in the U.S., not a huge issue. You know, it's still there, it can still happen. Worldwide, though, it's, it still kills a lot of people. So it's estimated that about 30,000 to 70,000 deaths a year are actually attributed to rabies. Uh, most of those obviously occurring in these underdeveloped countries. Uh, about 30,000 deaths a year occur in Asia, and 20,000 20, of those uh, occur in India alone. Uh, the majority of these from feral dogs as a primary reservoir. Uh, rabies is present on every continent except for Antarctica. Uh, with 95% uh, of human deaths occurring in Asia and Africa. So uh, once again, you know, it's, it's something that uh, here in the U.S. we probably don't think about a lot, but if you're going to travel to one of these places, or if you've been there, people who have lived there or from there, uh, you guys know, like rabies is a real deal there. Uh, I can imagine, especially living in places that have a lot of wildlife, it's probably pretty, uh, you know, it's endemic to a lot of those areas anyway, but uh, pretty crazy stuff. Uh, what is nice, though, is that every year more than 29 million people do receive the, that kind of prophylaxis. Uh, this is estimated to prevent kind of hundreds of thousands of deaths from rabies. So even though there's still a substantial amount of death, there could be a lot more without this prophylaxis. Uh, it should also be known globally. Uh, they estimated the cost of dog-related rabies transmission uh, is to be about $8.6 billion a year is how much it's costing, which is absolutely insane. So um, it just makes me wonder. I know that a lot of these places it's not a first priority or top priority, and it's probably something they couldn't even, you know, logistically handle. But dog vaccination programs, like here in the U.S., highly uh, effective at cutting that down. But uh, like I said, we're we're very privileged for those of us who live in these kind of more developed countries to actually, you know, it's a real what they call a first world problem um, almost. Even though it's you know life saving measures, it's great. We don't have the rabies incidences anymore, but it, it does make you think like, wow, like living in some of these other countries, just some of the things they have to worry about day to day. So, so anyway, uh, so rabies, you know, as we talked about, had a mortality rate of about 100% once you're symptomatic. I just said, have, you know, up to 70,000 deaths per year. So why don't we talk about our death count now? So we're gonna take that number of 70,000. I'm gonna highball this one. Um, uh, been around for about 4,000 years that we know of. So we'll take our 70,000 deaths. And for those of you that are the first time listening, the end of each show, uh, I'll take a, I'll do a death count. So I'll take the, the number of deaths uh, per year, multiply that uh, to get, uh, you know, we'll multiply by pretty much how long the disease has been known to be around uh, or confirmed to be around. Uh, and then uh, we'll try and either, we'll take our, our total number of dead uh, and then we will try to see if they can reach the moon, if they can reach the top of the Empire State Buildings. We kind of, I say stack them, but kind of lay them out head to toe uh, and try to wrap them around the, uh, the Earth. So once again, I know it's a little bit morbid, but I do this just to illustrate the fact that, you know, these are diseases that are out there every day that anybody can come in contact with and still cause quite a bit of uh, illness uh, and death throughout the world. So anyway... So our death count. So we're going to take the 70,000 deaths per year. We'll multiply that by 4,000 years. That gives us about 280 million deaths from rabies. Uh, so we will take our average height, uh, 5 foot 5 inches, average height of an adult, uh, and we will multiply that by our 280 million. 
Uh, so we get a total of about 1,516,670,000 feet. That uh, breaks down to about 287,248 miles. So let's try and reach the moon. So the moon is 238,900 miles away. So if we stacked, uh, kind of, you know, stacked our dead to the moon, our rabies-laden dead, uh, we would reach the moon 1.2 times we could get there. So we could get to the moon with a rabies. Uh, we're trying to reach the top of the Empire State Building, uh, which my wife was just there. And she said she really enjoyed it. Quite a view. Uh, so it stands at about 1,454 feet. Uh, we could actually reach the top of the Empire State Building 1,043,101 times. That's crazy. And then if we're trying to wrap our dead around the Earth, uh, the circumference of the Earth is uh, about 24,900 feet. We could actually uh, wrap the Earth 11.5 times with our, our dead who are foaming at the mouth and possibly seizing and in comas. So, so that's rabies. So pretty crazy stuff. A lot of stuff that I didn't even realize about rabies, um, especially that it's still worldwide, just a huge issue. Uh, so thank you again for listening. Uh, I wanted to thank out there who uh, has recently uh, either downloaded the podcast or kind of follow me on Twitter, anything like that. Uh, like I said, any suggestions, please let me know. Uh, it can be reached at uh, youmakemesickpod at gmail.com and uh, on Twitter at makemesickpod. Uh, I'll throw this episode up uh, pretty quickly here. Uh, and like I said, any feedback, suggestions, uh, anything that uh, you think might make the show better, you give me a heads up. Still trying to find, you know, maybe somebody else to do an episode with uh, here or there. Uh, be kind of nice to have a second voice on here so I'm not boring everybody. Anyway. Thank you very much. Uh, remember, everybody, wash your hands. Have you ever seen that? They're hideous. Lifeless, beady eyes, clawed feet, huge, grotesque wings. Wings! <laughs> They give you rabies, you know. <laughs>